0: Now, these questions have been addressed right in the first century by the Apostle Paul. Some Jewish antagonists said the Christians did not enjoy their justified life or life that they have after they are justified. Because they are still struggling with problems and persecution. And some of them are struggling with sin as well. And the Apostle Paul contradicts that. He counters that thesis by showing that the present in no way jeopardizes the future. There are problems in the present for sure. There is persecution in the present for sure. There are troubles in the present for sure. But this present in no way jeopardizes a glorious future that we so talk about. And so today's passage will reveal to us three advantages, three benefits of being a Christian. Paul, writing to the church at Rome as it was read out to us a little while earlier, elaborates these three benefits in Romans chapter 5 verses 1 through 11. Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, we'll have the outline up here. Uh, please follow along as we look at it verse by verse or phrase by phrase. Uh, this is a rich passage. This is a little tough passage. Paul is rich in vocabulary, so follow along, please. Give me your undivided attention, and may God receive all the glory as we look at all these. Verses 1 to 5, you'll see that the Christian has hope in his present circumstances Through the Holy Spirit. The Christian has hope in his present circumstances through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit sustains us with hope in the midst of trials and dire situations. And in trying to explain this, Paul gives us five aspects of how the Holy Spirit does that in our lives. Five things, and look at it phrase by phrase as we go through. First thing Paul says is that the Christian has peace with God. The Christian has peace with God. Most of of us take this for granted. I sometimes take this for granted. We have peace with God. What a rich theological truth that is. Nobody other than a Christian has peace with God. You and I sitting here have peace with God. Look at verse 1. Therefore, says Paul, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. But Paul begins with the expression, therefore, since we have been justified by faith. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith. Paul is summing up all that has been said right from Romans chapter 1 verse 18 to Romans chapter 4 verse 25. And he's saying that sinful man is declared legally righteous. You and I are declared righteous before God only on the basis of of the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. Only on the basis of the death of our Lord Jesus Christ, apart from works. And this expression is well-suited to talk about the once-for-all nature of justification. And it is pronounced over the sinner, over you and I, in light of the work of Christ done on our behalf on the cross. And Paul says this justification, this pronouncement of God, that we are declared righteous, Paul says it leads to peace with God. It leads to peace with God. Now, peace with God is the most wonderful thing anyone can possess. It is better than all the riches that the world has to offer. Peace with God. This is not. Uh, this, this does not refer to an inner feeling of peace that we have when the Holy Spirit indwells us. And because the Holy Spirit indwells us, it is talking about something objective, not something subjective of an inner feeling but something objective that exists as a state of union between the believer and his God. There is peace between him and God. We were at war with God once upon a time. We were the enemies of God. We were the children of wrath, says the Bible. But now we have brought into a reconciliatory relationship with God and we have peace with God. We are at peace with God. Now the background for Paul's idea is likely to be found in the Old Testament and particularly in the prophetic vision of a day of salvation which would be characterized by shalom or peace when the prophets envision and look forward about a day that would bring peace between God and man. And that was realized completely with the death of Jesus Christ on the cross and he brought this kind of a peace between God and man. It has been brought to inaugural realization through the, through the propitiatory sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. So objectively then, there is peace between the believer in Christ, you, and God. What a blessing that is. Second thing that Paul talks about here. The Christian has access into the position of grace. The Christian has access into the position of grace. Verse 2a. Look at first part of verse 2. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. Access may point to our initial introduction into the sphere of God's grace. Now, this Greek word is used in extra-biblical literature of bringing somebody into the presence of a king, of bringing somebody into the presence of somebody honorable. And what Paul is saying is, we have been introduced into the presence of God himself we have been introduced into the sphere of grace that has been set up, set up by God himself. Not just that, there is one more thing that Paul has as a thought as he talks about the fact that we have obtained access by faith into his grace in which we now stand. It may refer to the ongoing access to the treasures of grace that we have. We have an ongoing access To grace upon grace, grace upon grace because of our Lord Jesus Christ. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, we come again and again into the presence of the Almighty God to receive grace for every single need that we have in our life. So, Paul says that the Christian has access into the position of grace. Two things. The third thing that Paul says here, the Christian has a confident expectation that glory will be restored. The Christian has a confident expectation that glory will be restored. Chapter 2, I'm sorry, verse 2 and the last part of it. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Hope in the New Testament always is not something that is like wishful thinking that we use in our English language often. It's not like saying, I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow. Or I hope Coley scores a century tomorrow. It is not a wishful thinking. Hope in the New Testament always is founded on a conviction. On a conviction that God doesn't change in his word. God is truthful. He doesn't change. And so it is absolutely certain because it is based on the sure promises that are found for us, for the believer in scripture. And those promises have been given by God himself who never fails. God who never fails but we hope because we have not yet received the promise. Let me give you an illustration to explain this. If my dad is... All right, he doesn't have to be rich. Okay, when I was a child, when I was a child, uh, suppose my dad came to me one month before my birthday and he told me, on your birthday, I will get your bicycle. I know my dad doesn't lie. I know my dad has enough money to buy me a bicycle. I know my dad wouldn't fool around with things like that. And so I hope for the bicycle because of the promise that my dad made. The bicycle is mine already in one sense, but I hope for it because I don't have it yet. That is the kind of conviction that Paul is talking about here. We hope for it. And not just that, Paul says we hope in the glory of God. We hope in the glory of God. What does Paul mean by saying that we hope in the glory of God? It means, in part, to look forward to seeing the glory of God. We look forward to seeing the glory of God. What is the glory of God? What is the glory of God? Now, that's a word that is used commonly throughout the Bible. But, uh, but I wonder if all of us do understand what is the glory of God. The glory of God is the radiant splendor of his being. It is a sum total and a visible manifestation of all of his perfect attributes. That is the glory of God. And we look forward to seeing the glory of God. And Paul says, beyond that, beyond seeing the glory of God the Father and the glory of God the Son, we also will be sharing in their glory. What a thought, what a rich thought that Paul is giving about the great future that we have. And that is our hope, is what Paul says. And Paul says, we rejoice in the glory of God. Looking at what is ahead of us, looking at the fact that we will see the glory of God, and not just that, we are also going to share in the glory of God, it makes us exult right now. It makes us rejoice right now. And Paul says, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. You know, there was a little town in the U.S. And right next to that little town was a volcano that had remained dormant for a while. And all of a sudden, it became active, and it was going to burst, and all the molten lava and uh, was, burning lava was going to come and destroy this particular town. And they set a date and they thought they would uh, uh, evacuate the place. And so since the city was going to be, the town was going to be anyway destroyed, they stopped repairing the city, they stopped painting the houses, they stopped repairing the the lines and all of that, and it became a desolate city. And one of the inhabitants of that, giving an interview to the newspaper, he said, "You uh, you know why the state has come upon our city? He said, when there is no... Hope for the future, there's no power for the present. When there's no hope for the future, there's no power in the present. If you and I as Christians have to have power in the present and we can rejoice in the glory of God, we have to set our minds and thoughts and our eyes on the glory that we'll be sharing with God and the glory that we will, we will see when he's revealed in his fullness. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Fourth thing, Paul says the Christian boasts in his present experience. And I'll take some time because this is a rich verse. Verses 3 and 4. The Christian boasts in his present experience. Not only that, says Paul, but we rejoice in our sufferings. First Paul said we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Now Paul says we rejoice in our sufferings. We rejoice in our tribulations. Knowing that suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. And character produces hope. Now you and I don't have to live long enough in this world to know that we will encounter suffering. And we always encounter suffering in some measure or the other. Last just last week, I suffered much in my own body. So much so that I couldn't speak the whole week, and I had to ask. Uh, Jobin to take up the message and he graciously did we all suffer we all go through suffering and we cannot escape the fact that the strange response of the New Testament to suffering is that it asks us to exult in our suffering did you hear that it asks us to rejoice in our suffering But if you're like me, let me be honest with you, you'll have to admit that it is not our standard response. Rejoicing in our suffering, rejoicing in our tribulations, that's not our standard response. That's not my standard response at least. And some of us may be able to say we don't complain at least about our trials. Others of us may be able to say that we grit our teeth somehow and stoically endure our suffering. And a few of us may be able to say that we usually rejoice in spite of our trials. But how many of us can honestly say we exult in our sufferings? We rejoice in our sufferings. And yet, that is the command given to us throughout the New Testament, not just in one place. Paul is continuing here to enumerate the blessings of a justified life. And he says, not only this, that's how he begins, isn't it? Not only that, he says, and he gives a chain of thought here, he says, first thing, suffering brings out endurance. Suffering brings out endurance. So Paul's point is this. If you don't suffer in your life as a Christian, if I don't suffer in my life as a Christian, in the measure that God is asking us to suffer in our lives, We have no endurance in our lives. Endurance will not be produced without suffering. Because suffering produces endurance. Suffering produces endurance. You and I don't have to endure when everything is going our way. You and I don't have to endure when it's just blessings that we're enjoying all throughout in our lives. It is not difficult to trust the Lord when we are experiencing nothing but blessings But will you and I endure when life is hard? Will you and I endure when we lose our jobs in an untimely manner? Will you and I endure when we've been diagnosed with a terminal disease? Will you and I endure when our marriages are tough? Will you and I endure when we have a difficult kid to raise? In the measure that God is asking us to endure, we must endure because suffering produces that endurance that Paul is talking about here. Next thing Paul says, endurance produces character. Endurance produces character. Now, the Greek word for this means something that has passed the test. Something that has passed the test. When you go through a trial trusting in God, your faith becomes proven. God tests your faith and your faith has passed the test. That is character. Beautiful word for that, isn't it? That is character. Suffering produces perseverance or endurance and endurance produces proven character. Character. It means you've passed. It means you know by experience that you can lean on his faithfulness. And it proves that you're not a flash-in-the-pan Christian. You're not somebody who's who only comes to church when everything goes well. You're not somebody who says hallelujah when you get a raise. But you are a Christian according to the New Testament. Suffering produces endurance, and endurance character. And then Paul says, character produces hope. The same word that he started with in verse 2. And it comes to a full cycle, and he says, character produces hope hope. Now what is this hope that Paul is talking about? He began with hope, and then he says suffering produces endurance. Endurance character, character again produces hope in a full cycle. I'm following Martin Lloyd-Jones' explanation on this. Hear me carefully, please. He says the initial hope comes from understanding the blessing of being justified in Christ Jesus. The initial hope comes by understanding that we are justified in Christ Jesus. We have the salvation. When we begin the Christian life full of faith and hope, we get hit by difficulties, he says. We cling to God like never before. And we prove his faithfulness, and he develops his character as we endure. And then when we come out on the other side, we are more certain of the hope of the eternal glory that we've been called to. So the hope that we began with, is only tempered by trials and it's only strengthened. It becomes more certain when you come on the other side of the trial. Suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character produces hope. So the Christian boasts in his present experience. Fifthly and very quickly, Paul says very beautifully and simply that the Christian has the Holy Spirit. The Christian has the Holy Spirit. Verse 5, And hope does not disappoint us, or put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. The reason hope does not disappoint us. Now, we just talked about a cycle, remember? He said suffering produces endurance, endurance character, and character hope. And Paul is saying this hope that is strengthened by affliction, that is certain, This hope does not disappoint us. Why does it not disappoint us? Answer, because God has poured out his love in our hearts through the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. What a great ministry the Holy Spirit has as he indwells in our hearts. We often neglect it. We often are not mindful of the fact. But that hope is strengthened. That hope is proven. That hope is definite because God has poured his love into our hearts because of the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. Paul is talking here about God's love for us and he did not see suffering as though it is God's discipline here or or in any way that God doesn't love us. Paul says, keep your focus on God. And you can exult in trials. And the Holy Spirit makes us aware of God's great love in sending us his son to die instead of us on the cross. And when Paul uses the word poured out, he is talking about the abundance that is given to us. The love that has been poured out in abundance into our hearts. Not just given in drips, but poured out. This experience is what is Paul talking about. So in verses 1 through 5... We saw the Christian has hope in his present circumstances through the Holy Spirit. But where is this hope anchored? Where is this hope anchored? We said we have hope in our present circumstances through the Holy Spirit. Where is this hope anchored? Paul is going to talk about it in the next few verses. And Paul answers that question in verses 6 through 8. And they say that the Christian has an objective ground ground of hope in the cross of Christ. The Christian has an objective ground of hope in the cross of Christ. Here is the point. Hope for the believer does not float free from any anchor in history. It is grounded on a historical fact. And yet, that has a great theological significance. And that event that I'm talking about is the event on Calvary, the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul gives us three details. Let me go one by one. First thing, Paul says, Christ died for us just at the right time. Verse 6, Christ died for us just at the right time. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Paul uses two words to describe humanity here, all of us. He says, while we were still weak. Number two, he says, Christ died for the ungodly. Two words, we were weak, we were ungodly. Weak in this context means incapable of working out any righteousness by ourselves. Incapable of being able to please God in our own bodies because of the good, supposed good things that we can do. Dead in transgressions and sins. Unable to come and rise out of the rebellion that we have against God. That, some of the theologians call as total inability we were unable to please God in our own bodies. And Paul says, while we were weak, while we were totally unable, while we were willing, unwilling to do anything to be reconciled to God, Christ died for us. Second thing he says, he died for the ungodly as well. Now this talks about something that is irreligious. Somebody who is irreligious, somebody who is profane, somebody who is disinterested in the things of God, things that are holy. And Paul says, while we were still ungodly, while we were still sinners, while we were still unrighteous, while we were still weak, in fact, Christ died for us at just the right time. At just the right time. In God's own time. I don't want to explain that. Uh, but in God's own time, Christ died for us. In Galatians chapter 4. Can you quote this? Galatians 4.4. 4. What does Paul say? In the fullness of time. God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under law, to redeem those under law so we might receive full rights to sonship. Second thing that Paul says, that human love is faulty and fickle. Human love is faulty and fickle. Verse 7, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. One would scarcely die for a righteous person, though for a good person one would Even dare to die. Now here is faulty human love presented as a marked contrast to the love with which God himself loved us and gave us his son. But Paul is trying to contrast between a righteous man and a good man. Now hear me please very carefully. What is a righteous man in this context? A man who wants to do everything right. He may not have compassion. He may not be benevolent to others. But he wants to do everything right. He wants to get everything right. And he wants to be known as a righteous person. So for such kind of a person, very rarely will anybody die, is what Paul is saying. Although for a good person, who is a benevolent person, perhaps giving money to charity, helping people, for that kind of a person, someone might possibly dare to die. Wouldn't you die for Mother Teresa? I don't know. I wouldn't. Paul says, this human love is fickle and faulty. And then he contrasts that and says the third thing. God's love is pure and sacrificial, verse 8. But God, look at the contrast. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I wish I was speaking in a Pentecostal church right now. I would have got at least 10 hallelujahs. Thank you, Christ died for us while we were still sinners. God did not wait for us to clean up our act. He did not wait for us to clean up our mess. He died for us while we were ungodly. He died for us while we were unrighteous. He died for us at the right time while we were still sinners. Charles Spurgeon, who, whose sermons I love to read, in fact, I have. Three encyclopedias in my home uh, of his sermons. He preached on this particular verse for about two hours in his time. And then he entitled the sermon, The Greatest Demonstration of God's Love. The Greatest Demonstration of God's Love. And he says this God, to demonstrate his love for us, could have written across the sky in a magical way, Ravant, I love you. Or, Anybody, Starlet, I love you. Or Prithvi, I love you. But Spurgeon went on to say that that would not be the greatest demonstration of love. And Spurgeon also says that the greatest demonstration of love is not seen in a mother's love for a child. Neither is it seen in a husband's love for a wife. But the greatest demonstration of love is seen in God sending his son to die instead of us On the cross, a gruesome death while we were still sinners. That's the point. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You know, years ago, Karl Barth, who was a Swiss theologian. um, I don't quote him often. I'm not very sympathetic to his theology. But Karl Barth was, at his time, one of the finer theologians. And he was touring the United States, and he was doing a lot of open forums. At one open forum... Uh, at a university, one student got up and very inquisitively asked the question, Dr. Barth, you've done a lot of scholarly research. Would you tell me what is one of the greatest thoughts that ever crossed your theological mind? And they were all expectant for a very heavy answer that they would not understand, something akin to Einstein's theory of relativity. And Karl Barth smiled at them and looked at them and said, the greatest theological thought that has ever crossed my mind and that I ever cherish is this Jesus loves me this I know for the Bible tells me so Jesus loves me this I know for the Bible tells me so Christ died for us while we were still sinners and the songwriter George Bernard says we just I think we sang the song today on a hill far away stood an old rugged cross an emblem of suffering and shame And I love that old cross where the dearest and best for a world of lost sinners was slain. Christ died for us while we were still sinners. And God's love is pure and sacrificial. So what are the benefits of being a Christian in this life? Two things so far. Number one, the Christian has hope in his present circumstances through the Holy Spirit. And second thing, the Christian has an objective ground of hope. Where? In the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thirdly and finally, he says in verses uh, 9 through 11, and he explains this, that the Christian has hope that he will be delivered from any future wrath. The Christian has hope. You and I have hope that we will be delivered from any future wrath. And Paul mentions three aspects of it, and I'll keep them brief because it is a kind of a repetition of the argument that he already gave. First thing, the Christian will be saved From God's wrath. Verse 9. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Paul says we have been justified by his blood. We have been justified by his blood. His blood is the ground of our justification. It is because of his blood shed that we are justified. Paul is underlining that. Then he says from the sure fact, he goes on to argue that because of the blood of Jesus Christ shed for us, we will be saved from the wrath that is going to come. We will be saved in future from God's wrath. Now, the wrath of God that is going to come, that Paul is talking about here, is the coming day of judgment. When God is going to pour out his cataclysmic wrath upon all the ungodly, upon all the wicked, and after judgment, they're going to go to hell. But Paul talks about two kinds of judgment in the book of Romans. In chapter 1, he says that God gave them over to their sinful desires. So in this present time, God gives you over if you're not a believer in Christ. And if you continue to persist in sin and not repentant, God gives you over to your sinful desires to the consequences of your actions. That's one kind of a judgment. But if you continue to persist in your unrepentant life, not coming to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, at the end, there will be one more judgment. And Paul says, You and I, as believers in Christ, we will not come under the wrath of God. In fact, Paul is going to explain that in Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Can you quote that with me, please? Therefore, now. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And here is the much more type of a reasoning that Paul is giving. He says, to send his son and shed his blood is one big thing. Yes, it is a big thing. If God has already done the big thing of sending his son who came and shed his blood for us and died such a gruesome death, he will do the relatively easier thing in future of saving us from his own wrath. Won't he? Of course he will. Of course he will, is what Paul is saying. Second thing, Paul says the Christian will be saved by Christ's life. He said by his death we are saved, by his blood we are saved. Now he goes on to say that we are saved by his life. Verse 10, for if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. Here is a theological truth, and I want to explain that and listen to me carefully, please. Justification looks at the legal aspect, and it looks at salvation from a legal point of view, whereas reconciliation looks at it from a relational point of view. You are reconciled to God. You've been adopted into the family of God. Charles Hodge, a theologian, puts it very simply to explain this verse. He says, the logic is beautiful. If Christ died for his enemies, he will surely save his friends. While we were enemies, if he died for us, now that we are reconciled to him, now that we are children, how much more will his life save us? That's the argument that Paul is giving. And isn't that what Jesus said? Because I live, you also shall live. Because I live, you also shall live. Thirdly, the Christian is reconciled to God. Verse 11. More than that, Paul is not done with it. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. More than that means don't stop here. Go on with the argument. I have much more to say, is what Paul is saying. In fact, the rest of the chapter is very rich. If you understand this truth, Paul says, you have got to rejoice in God. And I have got to rejoice in God as somebody who is preaching this passage. As we have seen so far, Paul exalted in the glory of God. Paul exalted in his tribulations and he asked all of us to do it. Now Paul is saying, I rejoice in God himself. I rejoice in God himself. To exalt means to boast in. It is an emotional word. It is an emotional response as well. And those who have been justified by Christ's blood and reconciled to God through the death of his son exult in God through the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, isn't that what we did for 45 minutes in the morning? Didn't we exalt in God through our Lord Jesus Christ? And we ought to all our lives. So what's the point of this morning's passage? The whole passage basically says this. The benefits of being a Christian are based on Christ's death. And they include the hope in the present circumstances through the Holy Spirit and certainty of deliverance from future wrath. They include hope in the present circumstances through the Holy Spirit and certainty of deliverance from future wrath. Because of the cross, we have a great hope in our present trials and we have a great future as well. And we have confidence that we will not come into judgment on the Judgment Day. Thank you for your patience. My final illustration, and I'll be through. The government of Poland, I think I've mentioned this once here. I love these illustrations. When I travel, uh, I give this illustration a lot. This, this is something that has always touched me. The government of Poland, uh, the Polish Prime Minister once, his name is Jaruzelski, uh, he once put out a verdict in Poland that all the cross symbols, the crucifixes, must be removed from, it's a Catholic nation, we all know, uh, from, from all buildings, from government buildings and everything, and uh, everybody complied. And all of a sudden, one month, in a particular month, the law was passed that crucifixes, or the symbols of the cross, must be removed from schools as well. And uh, when all the schools went and protested against it, the Prime Minister said, let the law remain in the books, but you can have your crucifixes. But then there was one principal who was antagonistic, who was an atheist, and he said, the law remains the law, in my school at least, and so remain all the crucifixes, the crosses from our building. And everybody removed the crosses, but then the next evening, the parents who were were religious, who were Catholic, they came and uh, they brought even more crucifixes, they attached them to the walls and went away by night. The next morning, the principal comes, sees even more crucifixes than ever before, and then he has them removed as well. And then he says, there's not going to be any cross in our school building anymore. The next morning, 600 students from the school did a, uh, staged a sit-in, and the principal called the police. Police came, thinking that there was going to be a riot, riot and um, these 600 people along with 2,500 other students from the city, they went and they took a march to the largest church in Poland, Warsaw. And as they went into the church in Warsaw, there was a priest who stood up on the pulpit addressing these students. And police was surrounding, and that was being a live telecast to a lot of people around the world. And this man, and all the focus was on him, all the cameras was on him, were on him, and this man stands upon the pulpit. He looks at everybody and he says, you know why all these students have come here? He says, we don't want a Poland without a cross. We don't want a Poland without a cross. Well, he may have meant it in terms of a figure, but in terms of a Christian life, There is no Christian life without the cross. There is no Christian life without the cross. Three things as benefits that Paul gives. The Christian has hope in his present circumstances through the Holy Spirit. The Christian has an objective ground of hope in the cross of Christ. And then finally, the Christian has hope that we will be delivered from any future wrath. Let's pray. Father God, we want to thank you for your word, your word that is timely, that is able to encourage us, renew our convictions, and strengthen us for this life here. Father, thank you for the benefits and the advantages and the richness of being a Christian. Thank you for the Holy Spirit who indwells us and who brings out convictions in us who reminds us of the love of Christ, the love of God that has been poured out into our hearts. I want to thank you for the hope that we have in Christ Jesus. Thank you, Lord, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Thank you that in the future, we are not going to face any condemnation or any wrath. Because as Paul said so beautifully, O Lord, when you died for us while we were sinners, while we were your enemies, How much more will you save us now that we are friends? Thank you for bringing us into a reconciliatory relationship, into adoption, into your family. We want to thank you for this richness we enjoy in Christ Jesus. Help us to revel in it. Help us to enjoy it minute after minute, day after day, O Lord. And I pray, O Lord, for each one of us seated here. I pray, O Lord, that these thoughts would enrich us, enrich our lives, and enrich our minds as well as we think and contemplate and help us to exalt in the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. We submit the rest of the activities into your hands, the men's meeting and our fellowship outside. I pray, O Lord, that we'd all do it to the glory and the honor of your name. In Jesus' name.